beloved congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ. Our text begins with these words, in those days. And so the question we have to ask is, which days? Chapter 3 follows chapter 2. In chapter 2, there has been the visit of the wise men. There has been the flight of Joseph and Mary to Egypt. There's been the massacre of the children in Bethlehem by Herod. And then finally, there has been the return of the Lord Jesus together with his parents to Israel and specifically to, to Nazareth. And that's where things have been and stayed from chapter 2, verse 23 to chapter 3, verse 1. It's a long time. Chapter 2 ends with these words. He went and lived in a city called Nazareth so that what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled, that he would be a Nazarene. And what that means is simply this. That the Lord Jesus was no one special in human terms. He lived way out in the back country, in the unimportant part of Israel. And living in that place distant from the center of power, he was no one special. He was a normal little boy didn't do all kinds of miracles like some of the apocryphal writings claim he did. And as soon as he was able, he was helping his dad, working hard like all kids would in those days. Many years later, when the Lord Jesus comes back to Nazareth and he's preaching the gospel, people say, who does he think he is? This is Jesus. This is the carpenter. That's how they knew him. He was the carpenter. He was the construction guy. That's all he was. And that's what he did for the first 30 years of his life. He was a normal child, and then he was just a normal working man. You know, if sometimes you wonder whether the work you do is beneath you, you got to think again. The master of the universe did not consider it beneath himself to do honest daily work with his hands. And so he sanctified honest daily work. And so it's in these days when Jesus is just living and working in obscurity. He is no one special. It's in these days that suddenly John the Baptist appears. And he appears preaching. We know him as the Baptist because that's what the scripture presents him as. But he comes preaching. That's the first verb that we meet connected to him. He's not just baptizing. He's baptizing in the context of the word proclaimed. And later on when Jesus is speaking in the gospels, he says, what did you go out to see when John was baptizing, what did you go out to see? Did you go out to see a, a reed waving in the wind? Did you go out to see somebody dressed in nice, soft clothes and rich apparel? No, you, you went out to see a prophet. John is a baptizer, but he baptizes as a preacher and as a prophet. And if you just flip 
in your Bible a few pages further on to Matthew 11, verse 7. He's not just any prophet. Look at Matthew 11, verse 7. Jesus said, when you go out into the world, it's to see a reed shaken by the wind. And then he says, well, you, you want to see a prophet. And then look at the, 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 a few verses further, verse 13. For all the prophets in the law prophesied unto John, and if you are willing to accept it, he is Elijah who is to come. He is Elijah who is to come. What is the Lord Jesus saying? Well, now let's flip a few pages backwards. In fact, maybe just three pages backwards in your Bible to Malachi chapter 4 verse 5. The Old Testament ends with a note of suspense. Malachi 4 5. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes, and he will turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. This prophecy is spoken over the conception and birth of John the Baptist. He is the Elijah prophet who comes to prepare the way of the Lord. Now we know that John wasn't just anyone. He was from the priestly line. His dad was a priest. And it was, it was the priests in Israel that, that from their lips knowledge was to be spoken. They taught the word of God and they ministered the grace of God and the rituals of the covenant. And so that's what John's doing. He's preaching the word and he's ministering the grace of of God. And he, pre- he preaches, he appears in the wilderness, and we'll come back to that in verse 3, so we'll just skip that little phrase for a moment. We'll move on to verse 2. This is his message, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Repent, literally change your mind. Have a change of mind, which results in a change of life. And the word here in the Greek is the translation of the word we met there in Genesis chapter 6. The word, you might remember, nacham, to repent, to think again. It's like a 180 degree change of mind. That's what happened in Genesis chapter 6. God created the world. He said it was good, 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 seven times, very good. And now he says it's not good anymore. Now it's considered reprehensible and worthy of destruction. It's a total change of mind. Repentance in the scriptures is a radical change in thinking that leads to radical change in acting and in living. What we once loved, what we once tried to cultivate, we now repudiate and seek to destroy. And so when we repent, We stop loving sin, and we start to mortify it. And what we once despised, we once despised God's good and holy will. But now, when we've done a 180, we love and delight in God's good and holy law. So John is calling for repentance, and he tells them why they should be repenting. Why should you be thinking again? Why should you be rethinking your attitude towards life and towards God and towards sin? Well, the kingdom 
of heaven is at hand. Literally, he says, the kingdom of heaven has come near. And the, the thrust of the verb is that it's come and it's here to stay. This is a definitive act of God. It has started. It has begun. The time has come. What time? What has come? What has started? Well, it's the kingdom of heaven. Or as it's also called in the scriptures, the kingdom of God. John the Baptist is proclaiming the good news that the time is up. Time's up. The world has been for too long under the dominion of the kingdom of darkness. And now the Son of God, Prince Emmanuel, is here to set up the royal banner of the kingdom of God, to take back occupied territory. The kingdom of God will no longer be confined to a tiny little country there in the Middle East. But God is here in the person of his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, to claim what is rightfully his, the whole world. And so what we're seeing in our text is the beginning of that glorious process which is described in Daniel chapter 2. And if you turn in your Bible to Daniel 2, you remember that dream of Nebuchadnezzar about that great big uh, statue, that massive statue. You look at Daniel 2, verse 44, where Daniel's summarizing and summing up the thing. You remember that Nebuchadnezzar dreamed about a big statue with all different kinds of, made up of different kinds of precious metals initially, and it represents all the kingdoms of the world throughout history. And then at the end of the dream, there was a stone that was cut out without human hands. And that stone rolled down and grew greater and greater and just smashed that image into pieces. You look at Daniel 2.44, in those days, the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that will never be destroyed, nor shall the kingdom be left to another people. It shall break in pieces all these kingdoms and bring them to an end, and it shall stand forever. And look back at verse 35 there of Daniel 2. The stone that struck the image became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. That's what John the Baptist is proclaiming. Now the people are under Roman oppression. The people are under the thumb of earthly powers. They're supposed to be under the sovereignty of the God of Israel, under the kingdom of heaven. But that's not the worst thing that they're oppressed by the Romans. The fundamental problem with Israel at this time is that they are under the oppression of the kingdom of darkness. They're slaves to sin, and Jesus is here to change that. And so John the Baptist prepares the way, and he calls God's people, repent and reconsider your allegiance. And the scripture tells us that John is fulfilling the prophecy of Isaiah, verse 3. This is he who was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah when he said, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. Now, If you look at the beginning of verse 3, we learn a little bit about 
what Scripture teaches us uh, about the inspiration of Holy Scripture. It doesn't come through very clearly in our translation, but this is maybe a slightly more clear way of saying it. For this is he who was spoken of through the prophet Isaiah. Through. By means of. And in the original language, it's very clear that the one speaking is not Isaiah, but it is the Lord himself speaking through his servant. This is inspired word of God. And so God spoke, and he spoke through the prophet. And he speaks of a voice crying. It's a voice of alarm. It's a voice of announcements. It's a voice which is a herald's call. And it's a voice which demands that we pay attention because something important is happening. And he's doing that in the wilderness. Why in the wilderness? Well, the wilderness in the scripture is the place where you are basically the total opposite of the garden. In the garden, there is life, there is fruitfulness, there is, it's, it's verdant, and there is, there is abundance, and there is the presence of God. And the wilderness is where you end up when you turn your back on God. You're surrounded by death and dryness, and unfruitfulness, and unproductiveness. It's the opposite of Eden. And, and yet it's something that we need to get through. We need to go through. We need to get out of to come back to God. And so you see in the scriptures in the history of redemption, pictures of that. You see it when God takes his people out of the Egypt of sin. And he brings them through the wilderness to the promised land. You see it after the exile, when God re- redeems his people from exile and brings them through the wilderness back to the promised land. Those are pictures of what God does to the world, to the church throughout the ages. And so John calls on the people of God, prepare the way of the Lord. Every valley shall be lifted up. Every mountain shall be made low. The path has to be made straight. What he's saying is this. You've got to get rid of the obstacles. Get rid of everything that stands in the way of the coming of the King of Kings. And we read, didn't we? We read Isaiah chapter 59. And at the beginning of that chapter, we were told by the Holy Spirit that it is our iniquities that make a separation between us and God. It is our sin and rebellion that makes it so that we do not know the way of peace. That we have made as sinners, we have made our roads crooked. And so our sin, our rebellion, our our insistence on doing things our own way and not going according to the will of God, those are roadblocks we throw up to prevent and to delay the coming of the king. Now John is wearing a garment of camel's hair. What what does that mean? Well, it means he's dressed as a prophet. If you look at Luke chapter 1 verse 17 for a moment. Luke 1 17. This is where the prophecy of the Old Testament is spoken over John the Baptist's birth, he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children, the disobedient to the wisdom of the just, to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. Everybody in the Old Testament knew when they saw a prophet. 
Because that's the way they were dressed. They were dressed in rough, simple clothing, a garment of camel's hair and a leather belt around the waist. Later on in the Gospels, as we've already seen, the Lord Jesus specifically says to his disciples that John is the Elijah who was to come. So John's very look was a sermon. His very look, the way he was dressed was, was preaching to the people. Why are you living for the things of this world? Why are you just consumed, literally, with pursuing food and drink and houses and clothing and comfort and pleasure? And so John's arrival shakes things up because people are leaving their mansions. They're leaving their life of pursuing more and more comfort and convenience and wealth. And they're going out from all the comforts of civilization into the wilderness. Where it's just them and the prophet and the water of the river and the word of God. They're confronted by the Baptist. In his words and in his, the way he dresses, he's preaching to them, Seek ye first the kingdom of God. And then all these other things will be added to you. And you remember from reading Isaiah chapter 59, the picture of a people that does not seek the kingdom of God, but seeks their own Last. It was a horrible read, wasn't it? It was an unpleasant read. A people that is in a perpetual search for the lust of the world and the lust of the eyes and the pride of life. We read it there in Isaiah 59. The, the unfaithfulness, the horrific picture of a people selling their soul in order to gain this world. A people that is named by the name of God, but is blaspheming that name because they accept that sin is the cost of doing business. They accept that lies and corruption and violence and unfaithfulness and betrayal, rebellion and disobedience, they're all necessary in order to live what they consider to be the good life. And John comes to confront that. And out to him, verse 5, come Jerusalem and Judea and and the region of the Jordan. People coming out of the center of power. This isn't Nazareth. This isn't the backwoods. This is the center of power. These, These are the fancy people. The chic people. The sophisticated people. The movers and the shakers. And all of their hangers on. Because wherever you have the movers and the shakers and the rich, you have all the people that hang on and try to try to benefit. All the parasites that come along with them. They're all coming out, and they're going out into the wilderness to John. Why? How did that happen? What made them do that? I don't know. The text doesn't tell us. But obviously, the Spirit of God is on the move. Things are being shaken up. This becomes a, a popular movement. It takes a hold of people's imaginations. And everybody say, have you been out there? Have you heard? Have you heard the preaching? Have you been baptized? Have you confessed your sins? The Spirit of God is moving amongst the people. 
Now, one thing we do know is that God's people were waiting for the Messiah. We read in John chapter 1, we don't have time to go there, but in John chapter 1, they come and ask John, are you the Christ? Are you Elijah, physically um, in the flesh? Are you the prophet spoken of in Deuteronomy, the prophet that God will raise up? So they knew that the Messiah would come. They knew that he would baptize and purify his people. And so there was a certain expectation. You think of, for instance, uh, when the disciples spoke to one another, when they spoke to Nathaniel and said, we have found him of whom Moses and the prophets wrote. We have found him. So they were looking. They were waiting. They were expecting. But, but mixed up in all of these expectations was a lot of wrong-headed thinking. They were looking for a political leader to throw off the yoke of the oppressing powers, to break the power of Rome, to bring peace to these violent and turbulent times, because they were violent and turbulent times. So maybe they had mixed up expectations and a lot of wrong-headed thinking mixed up in them, but there were expectations nevertheless. And so they come, verse 6, and they were baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. Now, in the Old Testament, the people of God knew about the signification, what the the meaning was of, of ablutions with water. The priest would have to wash carefully in order to signify ceremonial cleanness and purity as they came into the presence of God. And the scholarship is not super clear on this, but it appears there are indications that by the time of the Lord Jesus and John the Baptist, the Jews did have a practice where people coming from other ethnicities and wanting to serve God and become part of the Jewish nation would undergo some kind of ritual washing. But there's not not a lot of data on that. What we do have clear data on, though, is in the Old Testament, many examples in the law of water being used to to be sprinkled or with effusion being poured on or even washing with water to signify separation from sin, washing from sin, sanctifying unto God and unto holiness. So the Jews knew what the water meant. But they also knew, and John the Baptist is emphasizing this, that it was not a question of ex opera operato, as the, as the theological saying is, that just by doing the thing, you get the meaning. The power of it just happens automatically. They knew, and John specifically knows, that the external sign points to an internal reality, and that internal reality is only worked by the power of the Spirit of God. That we need to embrace the external sign and appropriate it by true faith. And to understand that and to see that, we we turn to Ezekiel chapter 36. Ezekiel 36, verse 25. Here in the Old Testament already, the Lord is teaching his people this fact. Ezekiel 36, 25, and we'll read 25 to 27. I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean from all your uncleannesses. And from all your idols I will cleanse you. That's the external sign. And I will give you a new heart. 
and a new spirit I will put within you, and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh, and I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. That's what the external washing is pointing to. It's pointing to the coming and the presence of the purifying Spirit of God in the heart of the repentant sinner. And so people are coming. People are coming to the Baptist as people that are lost in sin, people that are needing redemption. And if you read the other Gospels, you see that they were asking questions. Okay, John, you baptized us. We've confessed our sins. Now what? How do we live? How do we then live? Because they want to live a life of thankfulness for the salvation and the cleansing that they have. And into this beautiful picture come the Pharisees and the Sadducees as intruders. You see, the Pharisees and the Sadducees, they don't come as lost sinners seeking redemption. Well, they come as what appears to be two contradictory groups, but which are actually pursuing the same thing. They come as legalists, and they come as liberals. For them, it's all about outward conformity to religious rituals. And the difference between the Pharisees and the Sadducees is more the external. It's how strict or how easygoing. But both of them are arguing about the shape and the color and the texture of the tomb and what brand of whitewash to use while inside they are full of dead men's bones of death. They all love money. They love power. They love telling everybody else what to do while they cater to their lust. And so John the Baptist has their number. He looks at them and he says, you brood of vipers, you snakes in the grass. Who is whispering in your ears that if you just do religious exercises externally, then you'll be fine with God? You see, that's what liberals and legalists do. The devil loves it when God's people divide into two groups. The liberals on one side and the, the legalists on the other. That's his dream. That's his dream church. When the church spends all its time arguing about what you're supposed to do, what you're not supposed to do, what you're supposed to change, what you're not supposed to change. But that doesn't describe the church of God. What describes believers is not that they're liberal or that they're legalists, but that they understand that they are lost, that they understand their lostness before God, and that they flee to the blood of the cross for washing and redemption. And so John says to them, who warned you? to flee from the wrath to come. And we need to understand, especially in our day and age when people don't like talking about negative things, especially in, in, in the Canada in which we live. Sometimes it's a little bit awkward. We, we kind of avoid speaking about judgment and about sin and about wrath because like, why would people want to come and hear that? We're going we're gonna to push people away. And brothers and sisters, it's an integral part of the gospel. It may not be very marketable, but it's the truth. And it's what Jesus does. Jesus speaks the truth. In fact, 
when hell is mentioned in the New Testament, most of the occurrences come from the very mouth of our Savior. And if you turn to 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 10 for a moment. 1 Thessalonians 1, verse 10. Then you'll see the apostle describing the gospel in terms of fleeing from the wrath of God. And so he says here, he speaks to them and he says that you turn from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven whom he raised from the dead, Jesus who delivers us from the wrath to come. It's a clear part of the gospel that Jesus delivers us from the wrath to come. So how are the Pharisees and the Sadducees coming? What kind of an attitude do they have? Well, they figure that they can flee from the wrath to come if there is a wrath to come, because they're not actually quite sure about that. But if they just do the right rituals, then they figure they're going to be, they're going to be in good with God. But the Bible teaches that fleeing from the wrath to come is not possible by doing the right rituals. And the wrath to come doesn't come... Jesus doesn't pour his anger and wrath over a fallen creation because we weren't doing the right little ceremonies. That's not the reason. If you turn to Colossians 3, you'll see the reason. In Colossians 3, 5, and 6. Colossians 3, 5, and 6, this is what the apostle says. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry, on account of these, the wrath, of God is coming. So God's wrath is coming because people that he created to his glory to be reflecting his holy image are loving sin, are living in sin, are embraced in a death grip with sin and they like it and they want to keep it that way. And John says, enough of that fake religion, Pharisees and Sadducees. You need to bear fruit in keeping with repentance. You're playing with the things of God. You have a very nice shell of religion. You know how to talk the talk. You love to argue about this being stricter and that being more easygoing. But when are you going to clue in that this is not the way to flee the wrath to come? For liberals and for legalists, there is only the certain expectation of fiery judgment. But for lost sinners who cast themselves upon God's mercy in Christ. Oh, for you who are in Christ by faith, there is sweet comfort and sweet hope. Bear fruit in keeping with repentance, says the Baptist. Because repentance looks like something. It's not just something you say. It's something you do. Repentance is saying, oops, I was going the wrong way. Let me turn around and let me walk the right way now. Let me go back in the right direction. Let me turn my back on sin. Let me seek righteousness. And maybe it's a long way back to the trail. But the point is, by God's grace, you've been turned around. You're walking in the right direction. 
And there are too many in John's day and too many in our day. I like to talk a lot about Jesus and about the gospel and about repentance. And they just keep on walking on that broad way that leads to perdition. And their mouth is full of all kinds of good doctrines and their ideas about what you should do and not do in church and in the Christian life and in the family and in the worship service are impeccably correct. But they continue to walk in the way of sin. I know it's wrong, but I like it. I'm not fighting it. I'm I'm loving it. I'm embracing the wrong way. I don't like the nasty consequences of my sin. But I like my sin. The scripture teaches us that true repentance bears fruit. And brother, sister, you know, don't think that true repentance necessarily bears the fruit that your life suddenly is just picture perfect. That's not what God is looking for. That's not what the elders are looking for. They're not looking for an instant, impeccable, Instagrammable Christian life, which is all plastic and clean and nice looking. That everything's perfect. Fake life and fake holiness is not what God wants and is not what the church looks for. What the elders are looking for is even the smallest sign that you hate your sin. Maybe sin has a hold on you. Maybe you're struggling. Maybe you're crying out to God. Maybe you're saying, God, I can't give this up. I'm physically incapable. But I hate it. And I want to be freed from it. Oh, Lord Jesus, I believe. Help my unbelief. Maybe sin has its claws in you. It's dragging you backwards. But your face is turned toward God. And you struggle with all your might to get away from the morass and the swamp and the quicksand of sin. And you grow tired and you grow exhausted. And sometimes you feel that you're hardly moving. But your hands remain outstretched to God. Help, Lord. That's the picture of repentance which is bearing fruit in keeping with repentance. We have to understand, brothers and sisters, that the church is not a perfect congregation of super holy saints. Sometimes you're evangelizing somebody, you're telling them about the Lord Jesus, you're telling them the gospel, and they're like, well, you know, when I get my life cleaned up, I'm going to join all of you good people there in the church. You say, whoa, that's not the way it is. The church is an emergency room. The church has blood and gore all over the floor. The church is a place of brokenness. The church is a mess of people with broken lives, broken sinners seeking healing, seeking restoration, coming to God, confessing their sins, and saying, Lord Jesus, how we need your blood to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. How we need your spirit to purify our hearts and to lead us in the way everlasting. And in verse 9, John warns him, don't come telling me that you're covenant people because being in the covenant doesn't save you, Pharisees and Sadducees, legalists and liberals. Being in the covenant doesn't save you. Being in the right church doesn't save you. Doing the right rituals doesn't save you. Belonging to the right group of people doesn't save you. 
You're boasting in your membership in the right community. You see those stones over there? God can make them into members of the right community, into children of the covenant. They're about as spiritually fruitful as you are. So John speaks words of warning and judgment. The axe is laid to the root of the trees. Wrath is coming. Judgment is coming. A life rooted in unbelief and loving sin produces the fruit of the flesh and delights in it. But the day is coming when there will be judgment. And no matter how good the sinner is at putting on a mask of holiness, making his life seem so religious, all will be exposed and judged and condemned. And so how we need repentance and to confess our sins and to seek the power of baptism, which speaks of the forgiveness of sins. John says in verse 11, I baptize with water. I'm, I'm giving the sign. The one is coming who is mightier than I. He's going to bring the reality. You think I'm laying it on thick? You think I'm calling for radical change and a radical break with sin and radical commitment to the kingdom of heaven? You think I'm putting it strongly? Well, there is one coming who will put it stronger yet. I am nothing compared to the real thing. Later on in Acts chapter 19, Paul tells people John the Baptist was baptizing and calling people to believe in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. He's the one that brings the reality. He baptizes with the Holy Spirit and with fire. Now, what does that mean? Some people think that it means that he baptizes the believers with the Spirit and he baptizes the unbelievers with the fire of judgment. And that's possible because if you look at The verse before and the verse after, fire is used in the sense of judgment upon the ungodly. And yet, we don't have time because the the time is going too quickly here. We don't have time to look at the text. But the, the, the Old Testament and the New Testament speak also about the Holy Spirit as a cleansing and purifying fire. It was the presence of the Holy God in the midst of his people that was there in the column of fire in the wilderness. And so, how are we to understand this? Is the fire on the people of God, or is the fire on the, on the ungodly? Think of the day of Pentecost, when the Holy Spirit's poured onto the church. What appears on the heads, children, do you remember? What appears on the heads of the disciples? Tongues as of fire. So, how do we understand this? Well, it's like the water, isn't it? Water does one thing to the believer and does another thing to the unbeliever. Does one thing to the godly, another thing to sin. Water washes away sin from God's people, and it washes away the enemies of God's people. The people of Israel go through the Red Sea, and it's the enemies that are washed away in the the baptism that they have in the Red Sea. That's what baptism says. Baptism is saying, you know what? Either you get washed and cleaned off, or you get washed away in the judgment of God. And the fire is the same thing. Either you get the fire in you, or you go in the fire. Either you get the Holy Spirit of the living God purifying you, burning away everything in your heart and life which is not pleasing to God, or the whole bang lot gets cast into the eternal lake of fire. It's like like demolition. If you've got a house which is kind of run down and you need to fix it up, There are two things you can do. You can go in there, gut it, fix it all up, and make it a place that's fit for a king. Or you can say, you know what? We need to just condemn this place and 
demo it totally, break it down to the ground. And that's how the fire of the Spirit works as well, for life and for death, for cleansing and for judgment. And so we come to the last verse, and we come to the day of judgment. The Baptist begins his ministry saying, the the kingdom of heaven is at hand, it has come, it's begun, it's started. And in the last verse here of our text, he's speaking about the end day, when the kingdom is filling the whole earth. And so in our text, we have that whole time, especially in verse 12, we have that whole time between the ascension of Jesus and the dies irae, the day of God's wrath. And what the Baptist is telling us is this, the great gathering project is underway. John announced the beginning, and we live now at a moment far advanced in the ingathering of the harvest. We live ever so much closer to the final day of reckoning. And here is the question that the Spirit puts before us this morning. Are you prepared for his coming? He will come again to judge the living and the dead. And of his kingdom there will be no end. Where is your allegiance? God calls you to a life of repentance. God calls you to live out of the purifying and cleansing power of the Spirit promised and sealed to you in your baptism. And so we pray, Lord of harvest, grant that we pure and wholesome wheat may be. But it's not just passive. It's not just something God does to us, but we, we cooperate. We respond to the grace of God. And we pray, O oh Lord God, make me love your goodwill. O oh Lord God, Lord of the harvest, send out the laborers. The harvest is plentiful. The laborers are few. We work together, we keep in step with the Spirit as we encourage our sons and our grandsons to prepare for the ministry. When we pray for and we support mission and evangelism far and near. When we call out to our community, to our neighbors, to our co-workers, and we say to them, don't waste your life. Come and worship. The kingdom is near. Come and live. Be part of the great harvest which God is gathering together. There is still time to flee from the wrath to come. Don't be ashamed of telling your friends and neighbors and, 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 um, and, and your family members that don't know the Lord. Don't be afraid to speak of the wrath to come. It's a part of the gospel. There is, says the scripture, look at the end of our verse, the end of our, our text. There is an unquenchable fire awaiting those who will not bow the knee and confess the name. It is an eternal and a righteous judgment. And the day is coming when all the kingdoms and powers of this world will be smashed to dust by that stone cut out without human hands. And we need to call those around us with love. We need to call on them, run, run away from that destruction. Come into the kingdom, which is life, which is growing, which is growing and growing till it fills the whole earth. Because we love you. We hold out the gospel of life to a dead and a dying world. Flee the flames of judgment. Embrace the purifying power of the Spirit of Christ. Then there is no fear and no judgment and no condemnation, but only a hopeful expectation of the fullness of joy in the kingdom which has no end. So we call our friends and our family and our neighbors that don't know the Lord. We call on them, come and join us in singing. Then let your refining spirit, us with flaming zeal and dew, may we wait with eager longing for your promise to come true. 
when you, Lord, with fire from heaven, all creation will renew. Amen.